0: Saturday. What
1: day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly.
0: Ah! Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcons number Falcon Screen and we are joined by the filmmaker Chris Evans. What up? The freelancer freelance writing critic for Rottnay Roo. Hey chill boys. So we're going to be talking about a new release movie in this program. Guys, a new release. Takara.
2: Yeah. I need to um, preface this. We said we would be talking about The Five Bloods and also The Assistant, but we couldn't find The Assistant in the places where allegedly it's been for a while. I noticed it's showing at the Ritz when they reopen on July 1. So I'm wondering if this movie's just been pulled from the online streaming thing to give it more time in cinemas now that that's actually an option.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, because when you mentioned it and I looked for it, it was supposed to be there and then I tried to watch it later on and I couldn't find it myself. So.
2: That would make sense. We'll cover that film at a later date, but we will cover The, the Five Bloods. Yeah, when we're
1: in
0: Cinemas reopening, because cinemas are reopening from July 1st with social distancing measures Something we look forward to, including Tenet at the end of next month now. Maybe. Maybe uh, I'm, uh, I'm skeptical
2: with the way that the coronavirus is rising again in the US, but I guess we'll see.
1: Also, I'll, um, I'll
0: put a bit on this one.
1: I'm not sure that I want to go like to a cinema right now and watch a movie, and you know that's I think the big that question isn't it it's going to give me take me a couple of months or even because you know cases are rising again here as well, so it's not like it's it's exactly yeah Victoria, hello. <laughs> If you're yeah, yeah, I reckon to, to, to be studios. clear,
0: we're recording this on Tuesday, so we don't know what news might have ventured to come Wednesday. But there may be more developments on this front. Especially. Exactly. Yeah, I think the studios would be keeping a
2: very close eye on what's happening in every each individual country. It's really right down to the wire. But Christopher Nolan is obsessed, I think, with being the hero that saves the cinemas. I read something really funny the about hero Nolan we
0: the need, days. but not the one we deserve right now. Maybe the other way I read, around. I read apparently he keeps a piece of
2: film in his suit pocket all like all the time. So he can, like, yes, holy oh film. <laughs> so he can oh see the substance. world through it. Yeah, <laughs> <Is this laughs> I
0: totally most... believe that.
2: It's actually this true. Most... It's not some online joke. That's apparently a true fact about Christopher <laughs> Nolan that's being revealed <laughs> through a new profile of him.
1: This is the most weird piece of trivia slash creepy fact about an old dude. It's so funny with like
2: all the, all his stuff about it must be seen in 70 millimeter to know that he's like that into not just film the medium, but film... The celluloid <laughs> medium do you, do you he think carries I, I,
1: it around I can, with him. I can, I can just imagine Christopher Nolan as this ice cream guy I'd be like, Hey kids, want to check out my piece of film? Yeah.
0: <laughs> I can just imagine like him being bored one day instead of taking, just taking out the film and moving it really, really fast and seeing if like, the stills just progress. <laughs> look, look, I'm seeing a movie. No aspersion, <laughs> that sounds amazing. And you make incredible films, dude.
1: You'll be like, Look, I made the moving pictures. <laughs> Yay, move them around!
0: We, we mock him, but we are eagerly awaiting Tenet. And- we, we are eagerly awaiting his next piece of celluloid. <laughs> so, And we, we, we do look forward to... I, I appreciate many folks will be cautious. I'll see how I feel come July, but um, at one point I do look forward very much to being back in front of a big screen again, as much as I've enjoyed Zoom watches these past few months, including the Sydney Film Festival watches we've been covering.
1: That's true. That's true. But- um. It could be that this may be the only film that releases till the end of the year. So there may be just Tenet, and that's it. Well, there are other
0: major releases. I so think Staten Island is coming out.
1: Yeah,
2: um, that was a straight-to-streaming movie in the US. It looks like it might actually play in cinemas here.
0: Bill and Ted. Yeah.
2: Think. But um, Mulan, isn't that meant to be out in, like, August? Well, It'll well, depend on
0: China. Yeah.
1: And, we'll see.
0: And, and then and No a. Time to Wonder Die Wonder in
1: November. Wonder? And the new Wonder Woman as well, right?
0: We'll be continuing to bring coverage of the films that are coming out coming out over the next few months. We're just going to be talking later in the program about uh, the dearly departed Joel Schumacher, who passed away today at the age of eighty. He has an incredible filmography stretching back several decades. Certainly, before I knew directors very well, I was watching Schumacher films, and as I tried to learn more about cinema, his name was one of the first directors that would very much crop up as the early films then and did my childhood such as batman if ever batman begins and we're going to be talking more about those a little bit later and first we want however we want to talk about our city film festival coverage and a wrap of SFF, SFF wrapped on sunday you can check out some of our coverage and check out some of the films that will be streaming in London from places including sea fever one we really liked and a few others that have since won awards um one thing we want to address is there's been some controversy in the past few days in relation to the Dendy Short Film Awards Best Director winner, Mukbang, which is directed by Eliza Scanlon. There's been coverage of this <coughs> in the Herald, in the ABC, Pedestrian, and Bolt, Andrew Bolt, excuse me, covered it in the Daily Telegraph yesterday. It is a film about by Eliza Scanlon about the online phenomenon of Mukbang, which is, um, I think Chris yeah, it was like, a,
2: as I understand it, it's like a vlogging while trying to cram yourself with as much food as possible, essentially. And the film is about a teenage girl in Australia who is uh, indulging in mukbang and discovering herself in the process.
0: Yeah. The controversy started, brought, I should say what was brought to your attention when Michelle Law on Twitter made some strong criticisms of the film following the film winning the Dendy Award. Um, I'm quoting here, michelle law's criticism was that it appropriates korean culture in order for a white girl to find herself and reportedly contains a drawing where a protagonist is strangling the antagonist who is a black teenage boy we'll address this in a little further detail later um this scene was also reportedly edited out of the film after one which law characterizes i quote dishonest and unfair to the other films in consideration we have not seen this film if we just
2: want to preface all our conversation about this with the fact that we haven't seen it We wish we could have seen it because we think that would be a much more honest way of covering it than a lot of the pundits who have weighed in have uh, done. So Andrew Bolt included.
1: Yeah, but we did do the honest thing. We tried to ask for it and we tried to do our best to to watch it. We tried to source it, but but we couldn't.
0: I... I'm to not clear, To be clear, we we, uh, we try to source the film from the publicist and not SF, this is not on SFF because the festival has concluded and we have not been able to secure a copy of the film.
2: I think context is really important and the details I've read about this film are vague. So I'm not willing to weigh in about whether this film is racist or not until I've actually seen
0: it. No, I'm not prepared to comment on that dimension of it either I'm prepared to comment on another dimension of the scandal or controversy. We'll get to that in a moment. But we do think it's important that if people are going to criticize the film, at the first they see it and that they... They have seen it. They clarify they see it in any coverage. Scanlon on her Instagram uh, wrote in response to Law, a few comments. I'll read them out. Uh, I'll read sections of those out now. The full account is available on her Instagram. And I quote: "I am deeply sorry for creating work that has caused offence. I intended this film to be a young girl's journey of self-discovery in the age of internet culture, and I failed to recognise how problematic that was." She goes on to say: "I want to apologise for cutting the scene that displayed an illustration." of violence against the black character without addressing it first. It was a rash decision in response to hearing that had triggered a number of people. Um, according to the SMH, city film festival recognition moodly said that it supported city film festival supported the selection of mukbang and the Dendy awards and the jury's deliberations and agreed to remove quote, an image, which may cause unintended triggers. The festival respected the filmmakers request to change their film to an alternate version and affected the change end quote. Now, we're not going to be commenting on the film because we haven't seen it. However, we do wish to comment on the on the editing of the film, as according to Scanlan's account, without making clear that the film was edited and later putting it online without that without that clarity. Scanlan uh, addressed this, therefore, uh, criticisms. I think, as, at least, I wish to make, are directed at her. But as regards to the festival. Sydney Film Festival could have done many things. They could have added a content warning. They could have added additional reading. They could have added memoranda. They could have put a director's edit at Scanlon's request without replacing the original up online. But I don't believe it is correct or fair or proper to replace a film or edit one, moreover, without saying anything and more of an award winner given... As it is more of a cultural artefact. And I agree with law to the extent that it is grossly unfair to any filmmaker that entered. And I actually haven't heard of something like this happened before. If I'm allowed to be blunt here, I'll say that cutting this
2: uh, without putting up any notice that the film had been edited was incredibly stupid on the part of the filmmakers in the festival, I would say. Because it makes a situation that might have just died down, that there was some controversy and some discussion about this film, into a major thing because it makes it look like the, like all the parties are guilty and all the parties have something to hide. It looks like they're trying to pull a fast one over the audience. It seems like an admission of guilt. And yes. I, I think that's a very stupid thing to do.
1: I think, I think stupid is a mild way to put it, actually, because it actually, <laughs> what it does, it skews the perspective as if that something is going on, which is more insidious than it actually is. Right, that- yeah it also belittles the audience's intelligence. The fact Mm. that people can read different things from the original in whatever way it was meant, we would never know now because it was edited out. So we probably would not have access to the original film. If Scanlan
2: had put a note up saying, oh, I acknowledge, I, I now see this was racist or problematic or offensive or whatever, and I've decided to remove it, at least that would be honest and would be part of the conversation in some way. But it seems like they were trying to dodge the conversation trying to dodge controversy, and they end up looking very, like they're very, very guilty and have something scandalous to hide and that they were hoping that no one would notice. And it's like this, it's a movie about the internet, right? Surely if you're up on the internet age, you know that people don't forget anything.
1: The irony of that is not lost on
0: me, which is weird. It's a very bad precedent. It's something that I think was poorly handled. I don't believe it's appropriate to edit the film after it's released. Especially after it won. Yeah, to um, draw distinction to Chris's point, I agree that it would have added to the conversation in a different way. I still think it would be more appropriate if they were to do a new edit of the film to release it in addition to what was currently online. And say, I agree. This is the latent director's intent. That's fine. Many directors do that, and that's absolutely okay, but you can't correct the record of what has come before.
2: Exactly, or potentially just take the path of submitting a new edit to future film festivals. But the the version that was released is presented as the one that won
1: the award i think chris you've hit the nail bang on the head it is creating a deliberate deception which may not be the intention but it feels deceptive as if like you're trying to suggest that this is the version that actually won and here's how we're now showing it to the world you know this is the film that won the award and here's why it won it but when actually in actuality it's not the entirety of the film that won the award because yes it's not question about whether it's one image or one scene or how long or how short it is it is the fact that you don't get to see the original artifact and get to witness it in whatever form it was and also it's it's
2: literally presented as the winner if you go and see the winner you see this and what this new edit is not the
1: film that won yeah it's it's actually is deceptive in that sense which is i think stupid is a mild way to put it for a casual audience member or a viewer, it might feel even malicious because, like,
2: yeah, kind of, and feel it feeds like, the controversy. Like, oh, yeah. like Sydney Film Festival is racist and decides to hide its racist film, you know, to dodge. Like, you know, they they could have at least given people avenues to speak, and then it wouldn't have inflamed people's anger. You know, because it feeds into that narrative of, of the way of phrasing it I just said. For the record, that's not my take or my stance. Yeah,
1: but that's the thing. We, we would never know now as to what that conversation could have been because the film, let's say, if it was in its original piece and in intended form, but it, if it, that had been released to the audience and we could have seen it, then at least that conversation could be had in a more honest way. But now that conversation can never be had because we don't have access to that original artifact of the camera.
0: All right, so that is the conclusion of our City Film Festival coverage. Um, separate to the conversations we have discussed, um, details of the films that have screened at this year's City Film Festival are available online. And we do encourage you to seek out those films including Sea Fever and take a look at the conversations that have happened with directors and filmmakers online. And we'll be back next year for another City Film Festival, or potentially given our online, maybe, in, maybe individual events throughout the year, we hope. I hope
2: we'll be at a real film festival in a real theater, and not this online nonsense. No, I'm I'm okay with it, this as a as a response to the necessity, but I miss film festivals, first world problems and all that. But I miss standing on that, in line in a
1: cold. I do. Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah. In
2: the so yeah. the the sheer sensory bombardment of going from aircon to chill, um, waiting in line, movies and more movies. Yeah. please oh. give me that next year.
0: On this, um, I interviewed Nash and Moodley, the festival director, last week, and I asked him if he thought there was, this would be the format going forward. He said, no, we want to have a physical festival next year. We miss everyone. So th- it certainly is the aim. But if there were one of Sydney Film Festival events throughout the year, I certainly miss the physical festival. I wouldn't object. So in terms of what's happening around town this week in the world of streaming, on Thursday night, the Jewish International Film Festival are having an online event and talk, the Melbourne Web Fest are having their launch on Thursday night too. Static Vision, who had an amazing event last week with Paul Strader and lady world director amanda kramer are continuing in the 13th of their weekly film series on friday night as our monster fest sf3 are also having a movie premiere on friday night that is the smartphone flick fest sf3 the environmental film festival australia is having a streaming event online on the 27th this weekend and filmonic melbourne short film network are having their online film night on the 30th and you can still get your flicks in moving on rp Joel Schumacher, who passed away yesterday, excuse me, yesterday when this ghost air at the age of 80. I, the most recent Joel Schumacher film I watched was The Phantom of the Opera. I'd seen it a few times over the years. Me and my roommate watched it all of a month ago. Um, You're a long- big
2: fan, aren't you, Glenn, of Schumacher's Phantom?
0: I'm a f- I am. I like it's when I, f- I, I, I adore the musical. There are several great things about the movie which. Elevate the musical, and which I haven't seen any other production musical. But I've watched a fair few. One is that it lends a physicality to the Phantom. I know a lot of the imagery, and uh, a way of and movement was brought over from these Batman films. You will notice some very clear similarities, and there is obviously is a lot analogous. But I felt much more intimidated by this phantom than I have in any other text, um, with the exception of the original Gaston Leroux novel. Oh, so Schumacher's staging of Masquerade, go back and watch it. It's one of the best stagings of a musical number in the past. 10 20 years and it's the best one i've seen it's better than any in any of the musical productions it's absolutely marvelous and it's not just the only great film we made i'm um, the client we talked i actually mentioned it a couple of weeks in a different context. one of the very best john gusham adaptations he has directed one of the two episodes of house of cards for nearly years one of the very best ones where up uh, but the teacher's strike where the brick goes through the window and yeah. frank underwood threatens the um Head of the teachers union in his office. I have to give a shout out to The Lost Boys,
2: which a lot oh, of incredible. people a lot of people's favorite Joel Schumacher film, I think. Such a great encapsulation of 80s style, like alternative 80s style. Alternative fashions, um, you know, a really interesting concept for a horror story. Teenage punk vampires, man, at the beach. To- and, love, and jo- man, I, in English. I loved it. Right. The thing about Joel Schumacher is like the defining thing about his films and we'll get onto this when we're talking about Batman is like he was a very camp guy. He was an openly gay guy before that was more accepted in Hollywood. And he was unapologetically flamboyant in the stylings they put in his films, especially the Batman movies. But even yeah. something like The Client, you know, it's quite over the top. He lent into the over-the-top style and it works in a mainstream Hollywood context.
1: Yeah, I mean, the Batman movies are, well, they're, they're quite something. They're, they're so, and- so I'm, camp. I'm they're they're, they're
2: a back to Adam West, Batman, but yeah. even more... Ridiculous with the the neon crazy lighting yeah. and the wackiness of the characters. Batman I mean, Forever, I haven't seen in a long time, but that's not so bad, right? Oh, I,
0: I
1: really <laughs> enjoyed from. it. Batman actually
0: had its 25th anniversary this week, and this and Batman and Robin 2 have had a bit of a cultural resurgence as people realized we're not all that dark gritty. We like fun. And when I was. They were a meant kid, to be silly. I enjoyed more Batman Forever than Batman and Robin, but these are yeah. fun movies. I, I
1: don't think Batman and Robin had a resurgence. I don't think it ever. <laughs> oh, has. no, no. It has
0: had a bit of a resurgence online. That's people
2: well. who appreciate it. It's so, so ridiculous. It's kind of sad that Joel Schumacher has been so strongly associated with. These films and with fanboy rage, because he, I think, in a lot of ways, was the full guy for studio decisions. He pulled it off with the crazy over the top camp stylings he could bring to it, but he um, was pretty much instructed to make it like a toy commercial. There's a, a rumor that on set, or oh, it's been reported that during the making of Batman and Robin, you'd go up with a megaphone before it takes off and then go, Remember everyone. We're making a toy commercial. (laughs) Um, But that shows, I think he was very self-aware. Something that's really to his credit, considering the insane fan backlash he received, is that he took all that with grace and he admitted his failings and his faults about it. Um, it, it, As a person, one thing I've noted is that no one had a bad thing to say about him. He was renowned as a Gentleman. Yeah, as as a true gentleman. Um, He actually said he would prefer that people remember him for being kind than necessarily for any of his films. And so far that's being borne out, I think. though, Not to say that people don't remember his films, but that's being borne out in the many fond words being said about him by those who worked with him.
1: I mean, definitely. I couldn't have guessed that uh, Jim Carrey and Tommy Lee Jones didn't get along at all <laughs> by watching Batman and Forever. I just like this
0: uh, today.
2: Wow. Yeah. Oh, they're, they're, yeah. The, the, the stories behind that are so funny. The, uh, <laughs> the legendary Tommy Lee Jones quote, I cannot sanction this buffoonery. <laughs> to Jim Carrey
1: but, but that's the thing Joel Schumacher's aesthetic was so camp that even Jim Carrey being even Tommy Lee Jones
2: Jim. went over the top into <laughs> yeah. whacking, you know the most serious the dude ever even
1: Jim, Jim Carrey being Jim Carrey wasn't like camp enough it isn't <laughs> the great
0: uh, Chris O'Donnell camp scene with the doing the laundry like a ninja yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of wonderful moments in these films. They, they brought me joy as a kid, and I had a little Batmobile. And you know what? The Val Batsuit, it's not my favorite one. It's oh, Has oh, anyone okay. seen Flawless, by the way? I haven't seen that. Um, but it's,
2: I noticed it's on stand, but I would have liked to have catch up on more of his films before making this. Yeah, but why um, not really, to re really watch Phone Booth, that was great. Phone, phone
1: Booth, yeah, Phone Booth. shows how versatile he is. He okay. made a really fun, him.
2: tight thriller, though.
1: Wait, Phone Booth was him?
2: Yeah, he made, yeah, you yeah, can okay, okay. okay. Sutherland
1: uh, okay, fun fun trivia fact. Phone Booth was remade scene by scene, literally, shot by shot, with Irfan Khan as as the guy in the phone booth, Colin Farrell. In, oh, in, really? Uh, Irfan Khan's Bollywood... the Colin
0: Farrell, mate.
1: Yeah, okay, true, fair enough. But it's a Bollywood remake. So, ironically, I'd already seen that film. When I saw the English version, I was like, hey, hang on, I've seen this movie already. What is this?
2: Right yeah flawless is um one he wrote and directed with robert de niro as a homophobic cop um who is doing singing lessons with a drag queen uh, played by philip seymour hoffman and apparently it's a great philip seymour hoffman performance as the drag queen like, apparently I,
1: can, I, I can believe that i don't think there's a bad philip seymour hoffman principle. oh no
2: yeah there isn't no, there is but the yeah i feel like I, three. if we had heard this news earlier i would have liked to seek <laughs> out that film and some of his others to give you you know a, a better tribute but I think he's a guy who has touched a lot of people, you know, had left a real mark through a lot of big successful mainstream films that
0: were pulled off actually well. So that is Joel Schumacher. He's 2020,
1: had the year 2020. that just keeps taking.
0: Yeah. <laughs> moving on to our next segment we are talking about a new film that is available on netflix which is spike the latest joint from spike lee the black plans director the five bloods it is starring del rey lindo and Chadwick boseman it uh, takes place both in current contemporary tempor- and during the vietnam war which as noted multiple times in the uh, film is referred to in vietnam as the american war it is about a group of Veterans and some of their experiences during the war, and also going back one part to mourn their deceased friend who died during the war, and also to seek some loot. Yeah, to find some buried gold in the middle of the Vietnamese jungle. I was waiting, awaiting this film. Uh, any Vietnam story for me uh, hits a little personally. We lost family in Vietnam, and as I mentioned before on the show, this film is no. Exception. Really it's really about, strikes. yeah, it's Sorry? about really
2: about the history, as you might expect from Spike Lee, mm-hmm. and the intersection of the Black civil rights movement and the Vietnam War. I found the historical context with this really interesting and a lot of Spike's essay diversions. Into the history to be really fascinating. Actually,
0: I liked some of them, and I liked the little bits of in, the little, little info dumps just because they were so stylistically well done. Here's this reference to a person. Who are they? Here's just a little bit about them. It I didn't a, like it at the beginning of the film where it's just this collation of clips of extreme violence. I love the end of Black Klansman. I don't think it had as big an impact or as instructive as what we saw later. He's and going it dispersed more through it's, it's similar to to. Um, I think, honestly, probably
2: Man took this device from Spike Lee, but it's similar to like the way that Ali opens. It's like it's giving you, here's the context, here's the anger and the fury and the violence of Vietnam War and the civil rights movement right as things were heating up and the, around the assassination of Martin Luther King. I, it is quite a lot to take in that extreme violence, but I thought as a video essay, tying it all together and setting the, the tone and the, the setting for the film, it was really well done, that opening.
1: I think Um, it was still a better way to do it than in Black Clansman, where... Yeah, Alec Baldwin.
0: God, forget it. No,
1: no, no. But no, but it's just that the the film tonally just just shifts completely into that mode. But at least here, uh, it's more of an effort to tie in with the actual semantics of the film and and the actual aesthetic of the film. I so was su- it's not a standout. It's not just a video essay in the beginning and end. Yeah. It's actually trying to intersperse that within the narrative, which is, if Spike Lee is going in that direction, then that's fine. I think it's, this is still a much more cohesive way to tell that story.
2: I think he's definitely shifting into that zone. Um, th- there's definitely a consistency in this, what he's trying out stylistically and thematically with Black Klansmen, where it's sort of a hybrid of a video essay with a lot of taking time out to talk about political points like this is a 60s Jean-Luc Godard film. But he's trying to integrate that kind of thing, like references to film history, notes on historical figures, trivia, explicit connections between the narrative and real historical tragedies and political movements. And he's trying to integrate that with a pulpy B-movie plotline and create a conversation about the way that cinema engages with history in doing that but I think this was way more successful for me than Black Klansman because um, one as you said it was tonally consistent um, in the way that it, it you know from the start in the for, I would say for the most part it was tonally consistent and the times when it was shifting tonally tended to be whether this worked or not to try and make some kind of satirical point and two, Because um, Black Klansman was really dragged down for me by this kind of us versus them simplistic plotline that's all about villains, where it's obvious at all times what we, the audience, are meant to think. Whereas this film was more of a conversation. Even the Make America Great Again hat-wearing guy ends up having quite a bit of depth to him, and the film tries to make you empathize with him again. That's not to say that it's not broad or that it's subtle, but the narrative B-movie side of the movie seemed to be trying to engage some conversations instead of spending a lot of time on simplistic villains and us versus them kind of rhetoric.
0: Okay, a few points to that. In terms of narrative structure and the filmic references, a lot of anyone, anyone who's seen this, most people who have seen this film will have seen Apocalypse Now. If you haven't, it's called Touchstone, which you will be very familiar with. The, the, the presence of Apocalypse Now in this film works both as a, as a narrative way to ground the film in that it covers literally similar territory. And there's mm-hmm. a great bit at the end beginning where they go to what turns out to be is a real club uh, in Vietnam called Apocalypse Now, which also speaks to how there's a particular version of the Vietnam War, at least from an American perspective, has mm-hmm. been commodified and um, been predominant. Not to say Apocalypse Now is a bad film. It's a very good film, which we covered earlier this year. The other film, however, I think draws much greater... F- from is, i sorry, that English was imperfect. Was um, Treasure Story, of His Hero, Madre? The amazing Humphrey Bogart film from, I think it's 1950. John Huston directed. Which is also about a group of people who go in search of treasure and we see the extent to which the search, the obsession, and can corrupt them. And I think that was well handled. To the extent that it's a film that uh, speaks, the politics of the film. I don't think it works so w- as well as a conversation throughout for a lot of it because so much of it is so heavy-handed in that Sarah. are so many individual scenes set aside just to explain the politics, where a character clearly represents one point of view uh, as if it was an essay in dual It's not subtle. Eases out elements. This comes up recurring, and it's such a long film. It's two hours and 35 minutes. This comes up again and again and again. So the B-movie elements, the B-movie plot I didn't mind. The problem I had was that the B-movie tone took over at so many junctures when the film's otherwise supposed to be serious. There's a problem that we're supposed to take the death of one character, which occurred decades ago very seriously, and we do. But when we are confronted with um, similar circumstances in modern times, um, suddenly it takes on a B-move resonance and has all the hallmarks of um, not a slap da- slapstick slap dash comedy, but is clearly going for a more comedic beat, which is such a more reverent and distinct tone from all else who've come. He's wanted to evince as regarding the conflict. And that was a big problem for me.
1: It's interesting that um, for the first time, and I think a long time, I'm siding more towards Glenn than Chris. So, hey, welcome to Glenn Appreciation Club. Hey, you can name it that. <laughs> but Let, actually, please, let's not. Yeah, but actually, uh, to, to your point, Glenn, which you said, uh, this here is, I defer it slightly, because I think the B-movie plotline was my issue with the film. Because I felt, uh, tonally, that's where the film and the B-movie plotline overtaking the elements of the film were the, the weaker parts of the, the film for me. And also, it's, it's too long. And I think those serious conversations could be had in because it's just the gimmick of everyone going to go for a treasure hunt essentially didn't fit right with me for the kind of a serious tone and the conversations that these people were supposed to have within that context. And like, I could not imagine these people be talking like that in that kind of time. So yeah, that was my issue.
2: On paper. And even as I was watching it, I found this film kind of contradictory and clumsy, but for me, I don't know, for some reason it worked. It added up to this kind of sense of aliveness. It, this, Some of these contradictions and strange notes in the film, for the most part, it all added up in terms of what I think was most important to Spike Lee, which was what he's trying to say here. I feel like this was way more coherent in that approach than Black Klansman, where the the message at the end is about how bat, how horrific and frightening white supremacy is, but the whole film makes it seem like it's a cartoon joke, like it's not really real. Whereas this is more about... The um, more real
1: consequences people actually have to suffer.
2: Yeah, exactly. So speaking to your point about the the B-movie narrative, on one hand, yes, I can see not just on paper, but as I'm watching it, the kind of strange, almost clumsiness of um, indulging in this narrative while also, you know, this uh, plot, which is really over the top, has kind of lurid violence and gore, which I'd like to speak to later on in our discussion. That,
1: that, was, that um, was the thing, because like, I couldn't take the horrific violence and basically the impact of that was lessened if I'm actually trying to, you know, it's being undermined by the b moviness of it all, where I'm right. uh, well, supposed to laugh at that at the next mo- moment as well.
2: Outside of maybe one moment, which I can't really get into without going into spoilers, I found the approach to the sudden deaths and the, the kind of the horror that this film goes into to be really interesting. Like, I was affected by the violence in it. The film is making... I was going to say this point is more subtly expressed, but it is actually spoken out loud. It is really about revisiting... Everything is spoken out loud. Everything is spoken Well, except for one thing, You're which I'll get to.
0: everything. Sorry? I think you are, you are told... Everything, if not almost everything, in this movie. Well, the
2: idea is obviously that that, as is said out loud, that the war is still ongoing, and it's literalized via these characters going back to Vietnam and fighting a war which has has sudden, brutal, and meaningless deaths. I think I think that's what Spike Lee's going for, and for me, I actually it actually did work on me. I actually, within the context of the film, did find these aspects simultaneously silly and movie-like and moving in terms of what they speak to and on that note the treasure hunt aspect you could say it's a gimmick but for me it articulates not that subtly it probably only seems subtle because of how bluntly everything else is articulated as we say literally spoken out loud by the characters but it articulates the theme that money is the root of all evil without saying it out loud this idea that that money breeds conflict Money compromises money pits nation against nation, w- without ever actually saying that out loud. I think just the MacGuffin treasure hunt, yeah, different I, actors I, I, get involved I, I, thing, I, I manages to articulate I, that message, I, which ties into what he's speaking out loud about: black history and and the roots of the war.
1: I can see that, um, and not just money in terms of nations and pitting people against each other, but also inequality and mm-hmm. racial inequality. Where you know, if he's and he's very blunt about that as well about certain aspects and certain cultures having access to you know wealth and Mm. that inequality then sifting down generations and then creating cycles of violence which is what his point is essentially yeah that if you're in poverty you can't escape that cycle because you basically embroiled in a cycle of violence and you can't escape that cycle because you're poor and the people who have more wealth can actually basically come down and then make laws for you in a paternalistic way and then you're supposedly so in in that kind of a very on the nose political message. At least this was better than Black Lancer because it's trying to not shove it down your throat. There's still a movie in there, and, and it was like, more
2: considered, more yeah,
1: nuanced. It's, it's uh, no, I don't think so, but in a, in a good way. Okay, I
0: don't think
1: it was. I, I I don't think that nuance is always a good thing. At least with Spike Lee, what he's trying to achieve with his politics, I think. Him being as blatant as he wants to be probably is a good thing because that's the direction he's heading towards where he's trying to blend his politics with his movie-making skills. Mainstream
0: accessibility. So Essentially. with regards to matters of inequality and how money factors into this, how this deals inter- matters internally with America and certainly to the individual characters was only teased out to the extent that this was... Disgust and not shown through action. And that bothered me because we kept recurring and this because obviously a major Thing for, for Lee, which you couldn't otherwise get across in this film, this contrasts with the very good handling of, of the economic impact and ongoing cultural impact of the conflict in Vietnam. One of my favorite scenes in the film is early on in the first act, where they're on a boat and the Del Rey Linder character is trying to be sold a chicken, and they just have mm. this escalating tension between him and the character, and where the ongoing racism that is inherent to a lot of discussions around this war. Is teased out very well on the matter of um, the contrast, the extreme, the lack of nuance. I'm I I take I take Chris's point. I'm like the idea that a war film can show war in an outrageous top way, and that it can be akin to what war is actually like. However, the film wants to be two separate things at once. It wants to be a Born on the 4th of July series drama which is emphasising the fact that all that um, life is sacred, and life is sacred, which is true. But it also wants to, you do, in to an extent, enjoy watching characters get blown up. And yes, it is, to an extent, a, meant to show this is a comeuppance for greedy behaviour or bad behaviour. But there is such a contrast between how... In terms of the immediate deaths, there is such a contrast between some of the ones we see later in the film and one we are treated to in flashback without reading anything much later, which is also similarly immediate death, but is given such more reverence and resonance. And it's so jarring to the extent that it's totally dissonant that I feel watching two separate films for the bulk for a lot of this movie. I
2: don't entirely agree because I think it's ironically, though the film, it has some of the South Vietnamese villains espousing very valid points about the war, but then they essentially are treated as cannon fodder, where we're not meant to have that much sympathy for their deaths, which essentially makes it just another example of the imperialistic, nationalistic, American military propaganda that Spike Lee calls out in some sense, even at, you know, it's sort of having its cake and eating it too. So I started that sentence by saying I disagree and ended it by saying I agree. But to flip it back to what I was trying to say... This film
0: by Club, Chris.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of thinking out loud um, and being convinced by what other people are saying. Um, but with regard to some of the other um, insanely gory deaths, for the most part, I I agree that there is something jarring about the contrast with the way that um, Chadwick Boseman's character, his his death is treated. But... For the most part, I don't think it was just kind of comic relief. Like for the most part, a lot of the deaths in this, I did find kind of really tragic and just how sudden and and bleak they they were. And often they they happen to characters who really don't deserve it and who are espousing the most noble intentions and philosophies. So I think the idea of of war is just brutally unfair is woven through to some extent.
1: I think with death, and I think I'm trying to understand Spike Lee's intent rather than trying to read my own or impose my own perspective on it as much as possible, is that his, his viewpoint is that, let's say, if, let's say, death and war is meaningless, then it doesn't differentiate between people who are supposedly evil or good. It can yeah. basically happen to anyone at any point in time. So yep. you know, in that environment, you can be basically the next one who's gone. And it doesn't matter if you are a good person or if a good heart, you know, because we've been conditioned through movie making to believe that if the person is good, that they will survive, or if the person is bad, they should die. But Spike Lee is saying essentially that you have to basically declutter your mind out of that. And basically, essentially, if you're in that environment, except the madness, yeah, Yeah. war can get you regardless of whatever your heart lies, it doesn't matter. Heart doesn't play a role in that.
0: I would contrast this with a very powerful moment in Saving Private Ryan, which plays out um, like—I'm not saying this is funny. I don't think, it's funny. I think this. I take this very seriously, but it plays out like a, a comedic beat might otherwise would have played in a different film. Referring to the scene when they land on the beach in Normandy, and a soldier gets hit in the helmet with a bullet, takes his helmet off, can't believe he survived, oh, yeah. and then gets shot. There are a few moments like that in this film. I think personally. It's a very powerful moment which plays it like a comedic beat but is very serious, underlines the absurdity and randomness of war. I think there are a lot of moments like that in this film, but they're accentuated by such an emphasis on extreme gore as we're so conditioned to see and as Leah's knows we're so conditioned to see and akin to um, absurdist, not absurdist comedies, but comedies that are tending towards, uh, films that are tending towards the comedic or light. And I wish he'd got the balance a little more. I think he might've been going for that, but it certainly went in a a direction, certainly more so as the deaths become more frequent and um, more extreme in their depiction. I
2: do think you're on the money though, Glenn, um, with some of the points about Chadwick Boseman's character and how jarring that is within the context of the rest of the film. Not only in in the way that you expressed, but also in that we're talking about, Virat was talking about this kind of like war is hell randomness to the deaths. Whereas in some of the way that this character is, is really more of a symbol than a person. And some of the ways that he's represented as being Christ-like, I think uh, way, way, way too much for a film that otherwise oh, presents okay. the war situation as being
1: very um, hard or darkness. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's exactly. The,
2: the, the horror there's kind of, this film has its own twist on the horror near the end, yeah. um, you know, to suddenly depict this, this one noble character in flashbacks bathed in in glorious light. Um, it, it, is a little bit inconsistent and especially the way that um, Delray Lindo's characters uh, feel PTSD and feelings regarding to that. Um,
0: He's really good in that this.
2: death. Oh, he, I was going to get to that. He's incredible. But before we get to the performances, just on this, this note about his relationship with Storm and Norman, the Chadwick Boseman character, the way that that's resolved is so Hollywood and neat. I think it's possible to make a accessible mainstream Hollywood film without necessarily giving into every cliched impulse. For the most part, I think Lee struck the balance really well. But in regard to how he resolves this, it's so convenient for a film which is otherwise about how madness can just take you as you age and you grapple with tragedies that can never be resolved. And Suddenly, he's offering you easy solutions at the end to leave the audience on a note of comfort. It doesn't quite land.
0: To a similar scene which works with much greater effect... um Bought on the 4th of July. Um, there's a not dissimilar uh, sequence of events that I think nails this much it better. It carried
2: it. A, I did present it better for sure.
0: Um, something I really liked about this film, just in terms of how it was presented, was the 16 by 9 versus 4-3 ratio chopping between Vietnam and current day. We're so used to seeing Vietnam through television lens and in this format that it helps situate sets there, as does the grainy footage um, so much the more oh so the fact that there were no younger counterparts of the actors they were just them playing themselves yeah. at that time i, I loved really all those things. well because it shows that yes they're still there even to this at this age they're still living it And i don't see a lot of perform uh, directors do this they didn't even bother to dress up in wigs to make them look younger it just worked with them as is and it
2: speaks to the way that you insert your current self into flashbacks you know, the subconsciously you you see yourself as you are now instead of as you really were back then. Even just internally, you know, because that's all it, we we know is the internal. Um, but yeah, with a lot of those visual aspects you're referring to, the experimentation with aspect ratios, which is a thing that I often hate in films, the switching aspect ratios but here is handled so creatively and so well. The over-the-top music and really saturated fake-looking representation of their glorious stand in the flashback to the 60s um, the chain, the the big wide cityscapes of the Vietnam city, and then the um, the more cramped jungle confines, and the eight millimeter stuff. Um, even when you were talking about the scene with the chicken that leading to a conflict, when you we were discussing that, I was thinking about how well shot that was. All of these things really added up in this film to a feeling that Spike Lee, as a director, is back. He's really revitalized with this new direction he's taken since Black Klansman. One of the complaints for me about Black Klansman was that outside of the really interestingly shot, as well as conceived, in all respects, scene where the main characters attend a Black Panther meeting, outside of that, I found the film really flatly, boringly shot. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like a TV movie. Whereas this is full of imagination, playing around with wide-angle lenses and letting the natural scenes kind of play out where you get a sense of your environment more, switching mixed media. Um, In time with the turns in the characters' emotional journeys, um, I could go on, but there was a lot of experimentation and the film felt really alive and brimming with ideas. Except for the times
0: of music, what didn't need to be used? There were a few times it was just too heavy.
2: That's right. There were times when it was too heavy. A few of those times when it's heavy, like the battle scene, I thought it was interesting, um, like the, the early flashback <sighs> battle scene, but often it was too much. Overall, it struck me as a return to the brimming imagination of Spike Lee that I, is, is really welcome back. And it's an, it's an old man type film, you know? It's, it has tons of ideas. It's kind of clumsy, um, but it's so direct. And these days, I find that kind of thing invigorating to watch.
1: I think, Chris, you compared... Uh this to Goddard and like the late Goddard resurgence that's happened. Whatever when Goddard does doesn't seem to care about what he's making. Mm. He's been more experimental, like Le image book type But thing. even even but,
2: in the set when Goddard had his Marxist phase, he'd have characters like directly in the context of supposedly a narrative film, yeah. just directly talk about politics and references to, to film I, and, I and culture and literature.
1: Because the weird thing I've noticed in reviews for this film is that a lot of people have been critical of Spike Lee's direction. And I just feel it's clumsily directed. No, it's not. And I feel that's missing the entire point. I think... Clumsily structured, (laughs) clumsily uh, written, maybe. Yeah, script or screenplay is a different thing. But in terms of direction, this film is actually present... I mean, I haven't seen Vietnam like this. No, neither. If you're honest about it. And we've had a lot of Vietnam movies. if If you go back, Vietnam is a place that's been covered a lot. But, but this was a new, fresh take on Vietnam, not only in terms of perspective, but also in how you capture the place. This, you know, uh, so that was different in the sense that we're going back to Vietnam. I was like, oh, are we? Do we need to? Like initially, honestly, when I read the synopsis, that was my thought. I'm like, ah, oh, another Vietnam. Vietnam, yeah, but exactly, he gives right. you something different, and he does. And but more more importantly, I I do like it about in terms of he's at that stage of the career where if he can experiment and be like, okay, cool, here's what He's one of the last of the old guard that's that's left essentially, and if you can show at a Netflix platform level in terms of what we can do mm-hmm. at this point in time in terms of creativity as a director then that's that's good news for other people to clarify
2: yeah well to clarify what I meant about an old man film, I mean that I noticed that when directors age they tend to become more direct, and oftentimes that means quite clumsy, but it can also lead to to some dividends, which I think you see here
0: i Really appreciated the focus in this on Vietnam, the Vietnamese narrative, Vietnamese narratives that you don't often see in Hollywood Fair. This was absent to a very large extent from Apocalypse Now, excepting the one great uh, and awful scene where um, they attack a fishing boat. Um, there are a lot of, I, I know Good Morning Vietnam was a trailblazer in respects in this regard. I think this film looks from many different perspectives, whether it be um, the very terrible uh, group we meet later in the film, but also the tour guide and others to show, here's the impact the American war had. I think this is handled clumsily at parts. I hate the bit where the fellow says, uh, but this is, f- and Milai. It's like, what Milai? And they paused it. Yes, I appreciate that a lot of people who watch this film wouldn't have the context of I like how we brought it in, but in terms of how the characters raise these sections of history, it doesn't bode from a dramatic perspective. It- my,
2: my sense is that from this point on, we're just going to have to either accept that that's how Spike Lee's operating or not. That he's going to have characters say, but what about this event? And we'll have a brief infographics. I think that's what he wants Oh to no,
0: do. I don't have a problem with that. I think it's creative and I hope it doesn't get copied ad infinitum. Uh, but how that was, came up in the narrative. He obviously wanted to talk about Muli. He was brought up relatively inorganically compared to how all the other American atrocities are teased out mm. throughout the movie. Mm. So it's parts of the clumsily handle, parts that are very well handled. And certainly, I think a lot of the performance... And actually, a, a We need to I'll speak mention, to the performances, performances. They're so good. Um, one thing I, I, we discussed in quite some detail, the apocalypse now redux, which includes the scene of the French plantation. We had some disagreement. I really like it because it addresses a fascinating period of history and the ongoing role of French colonialism in Vietnam. This was addressed to a huge extent in this. Uh, again, dramatically. And mm. I liked it. And also, the ongoing sense of guilt and ownership. Many people... in that community have over this era of history and the ongoing crises that are and and poverty and in, extreme issues that do occur to this day in vietnam as teased out on the film
2: do you think that jean renault's out uh, attire is a reference to the characters in apocalypse now i'm pretty sure they were wearing white linen suits as well but i'm not sure if it's just my memory
0: playing tricks on me <sighs> oh, i God. i he was he didn't john renault i didn't actually feel was very good in this
2: no, he doesn't have much
0: to do really. He has a, a, he's he has given quite
2: a simplistic role. Um, but the the performances in general though in this I thought were terrific. As you you mentioned earlier that Dent Del Rey Lindo was great. He's ca- I think. He has the deepest character. He has the character that I think Spike Lee is most interested in exploring in what's otherwise an ensemble piece where each character because there's so the movie's so stuffed that he, a lot of characters don't have that much to them. They they they're broad, they have a few things to define them, but he's the one character that you really get to see contradictory aspects of his personality teased out. Um, and man, he owns it. And he owns scenes where he's directly addressing camera in close-up. You know, he's being given some hardcore monologues in this. Yeah, And he, he's so, I think, so beautiful in this role, really. Some of the ways this film speaks to history is so interesting. Like the idea of the um, radio Hanoi. Um, uh, Hanoi Hanna? Hanoi Hannah. yeah. the radio. So good. Again, that's so, how
0: vignettes work well.
2: That's, yeah, there's vignettes of this Vietnamese propaganda radio uh, um, person talking, giving this kind of broadcast, which I 100% believe did happen. And where one of the they, best
0: scenes is where they find out that Dr. King died. Just, right, exactly.
2: Directly addressing black GIs and, telling, and asking them, why are you fighting this war? 100%, I guarantee you, those broadcasts took place. But it's such a fascinating kind of bit of historical detail. And it's seamlessly woven into the narrative um so i think when absolutely agree yeah i think when he um finds the yeah the right mix of like the narrative context and historical detail he absolutely nails it um the rest of the film yeah it's not that subtle but i think he has it in him and i wonder if in the i probably not given his career trajectory but i wonder if it's possible we could see something from spike that's as elegant as that in the way that it synthesizes these two modes he's trying to work in
1: I think we've seen good signs at least in terms of where he's progressing towards that if the synthesis of politics and filmmaking is where he's going towards, then this is only going to get better because this is an improvement. In a Black big
2: Lansman. improvement in Black Klansman using a lot of the same techniques and a lot of the same and, ideas. And, and a lot
1: of things that work, I think work much better than Black uh, Yeah. How they're synthesized as part of the narrative. And what I think the final piece of the puzzle needs to be is that, we just need to complement the broader arc of the story, in whichever is the, mm. the the MacGuffin, essentially, because he's like the 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 run for the gold is not really the story. Mm. So, You know, whatever story. It's a way of
2: it's the MacGuffin approach. Yeah. you know, it's a way of drawing yeah. out essentially, in in this sense, political conversation yeah. that he wants. I was to just
1: have. thinking MacGyver in, a, in my head. <laughs> <of>. <laughs> very very different. <laughs> yeah. Very different. But
2: I do feel that, frankly, oh, speaking of is back. like this is the best movie he's made in decades, I think.
0: Speaking of lo-fi approaches to complex, uh, fatal, near-fatal problems, there's an amazing sequence where they deal with a landmine. Oh yeah, and incredible tension again. Incredible drama and and real and realistic. I believe is absolutely uh, uh, and again happened.
2: incredibly shot. The the that, way that the spatial dimensions were really mapped out so that you could understand the scene. It's this is the same cinematographer he's working on with Black Landsman. So I and take practical
0: effects. God.
2: Oh yeah. So I take it that the the massive improvement in imagination is just Spike finding his mojo again and becoming reengaged. But I, I think Black Landsman
1: came, came at that point where. I think the political urgency of sending out the message came, was primary, and the filmmaking was secondary. I think I agree. here. There's a shift here in the balance. See,
0: it's good. I hope he sticks it, with that.
1: Here, you definitely yeah. see the politics and what you're trying to say is important, but the movie and the way the movie is being told and the narrative is still the primary driving force. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, there might be a sweet spot. I don't know what it is, but whenever he finds it, I think it'll be it'll be a great movie. Not saying that this is not still an enjoyable I'd movie. I'd recommend
0: this. I mean, I, I have listened to my issues and flaws with the film, but I would recommend this movie.
2: If this is the mode that Spike is going to continue to work in for the rest of his career, kind of messy, sometimes clumsy, sometimes really on point, but just trying out different ideas, Honestly, I'd be okay with it because I found the cumulative effect of this as we led to the, was the final montage to be really moving. Even if not everything works along the way, I thought the intention was felt very strongly. And so if I'm reading Spike Lee's motivations correctly, I would have to say that this was a roaring success from my perspective.
1: Snip 20 minutes and yeah, it was, it was too long. It, it was is long. long.
2: It feels like it could have easily been a Netflix uh, miniseries with yeah. four 45 minute episodes instead or something like that, couldn't yeah. it? Six half an hour episodes.
1: And that's the thing, maybe tonally it would have worked better as well because if you split them up as episodes, the shifts, yeah, it would have worked. shifts, like they prepare you better in terms of, oh, now we're entering this phase and now we're back in the flashback, now we're back here, and now, you know. So yeah. In, in terms of tonally things, especially now because we've been conditioned to watch miniseries with multiple arts. Uh, you know, so you kind of know that in every TV series that you're watching, there are four or five threads that need to be explored, and they'll be progressing with episodes. And in that yeah, context, think, yeah. It,
2: it, yeah, as you say, the tonal shifts wouldn't necessarily be such a, an issue. Each episode could have its own kind of different focus.
1: Yeah. And you'd be like, oh, okay, I'm prepared for this for the next 45 minutes, but I think when you're watching one thing as a whole, it does, maybe in a rewatch, it you, because now that you know you're expecting it, it's Going to be kinder, but yeah, the first mm. time around, it does kind of jolt you out of like, oh, this is not what I was expecting, mm. and you're not sure whether that's good or bad. So, Glenn can, you know, have more issues with it because he took it the bad way. I was just wasn't sure. I was just like, oh, um, okay. sorry,
0: sorry, sorry, I want to be clear. So, I have more issues with it because I took it as the oh, bad way.
1: Oh, sorry, not bad way. <laughs> I like, sorry, that was very closely worded. I meant the, 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 that kind of tonal shift can have a more jarring impact onto
0: one i i I don't mind but i i don't think this was handled well especially given the subject matter and it draws away from both the emotional resonance of the one while um deflating the emphasis on the the necessary emphasis on the absurdity of the other
1: i kind of do see a point though actually because i think maybe this is where i'm at and maybe this is spikely being spikely Lee, because. I wasn't sure whether I would have preferred a more serious film or a much more f- flippant film, and I'm actually unsure which direction this film needed to go more towards. Uh, I'm not sure whether it needed to be more serious or more flippant.
2: I will say it, it's refreshing to watch such a bold film, and especially a, a bold an original American story. Film. God,
1: yeah, an orig- yeah,
2: um, and an American film which is this bold. Who but Netflix would have funded this?
0: Yeah, good on them. Yeah. Him. yeah. yeah. So I recommend seek it out. that is to Five Bloods, and we'll be back next week. Uh, let us know what you want us to fight about. Certainly, with cinemas opening up, there may be a few more new releases on the new, near horizon. We, we
1: definitely need something to fight about next week, guys, so yeah, shoot us your ideas.
0: Yeah, Sydney Film Festival is over. There's a few more festivals coming up, and yeah, just and certainly there'll be hopefully a better understanding of the cultural landscape and what is accessible in the coming week as we're re- we're in everything's changing week by week
1: yeah. we're in july guys next week imagine that
0: yeah but this, stay safe
2: still
1: this is safe. like almost been half the a year, year that gone. wasn't yeah i'm just like where did the year go 2020 it doesn't feel like i'm already halfway down the year
0: mm. chris and i were talking um one of the last times i saw chris before all this was at mardi gras and at a, it wouldn't have been able weird. to happen In retrospect, it's so weird that, you know, the
2: streets overflowing with people. When are we going to be able to experience something like that again?
0: Yeah. The firefight concert, I remember was huge. Uh, Just a few more weeks and these things would not have happened at all. Yeah. Maybe the rugby finals would be the first big thing potentially. Yeah. We'll have to see.
1: But yeah, NRL. Yeah. I I still find it weird that you can supposedly go attend. Yeah. The
0: cardboard cutouts. Filling most, lining most of the stands. Like, like, I, I, I want to sit next to Bono.
1: <laughs> I mean, it was creepy enough when they had cardboard cutouts in, in pubs and restaurants to basically make you feel like you're less alone when you're social distancing.
0: I never saw that.
1: Yeah, there are actual pubs in Melbourne who did it. But wow. because it's, that's Melbourne for you.
0: I, I've been, have I actually been to a pub proper? I've been to a couple of bars and a couple of restaurants, but
1: have i been to a, Oh, pub yeah. proper that, that's a very yeah it's very british
0: yeah <laughs> go to a pub proper, proper i would love to go to a british pub that'll actually uh, that, that's time off still
1: I, I, I was i was gonna say pj gallagher's but you're like oh, irish is not the same you're right sorry my bad
0: yeah. yeah i'd love to go i'd love to go to an irish pub oh my god it would be the best have a have a have a freshly poured guinness or dark oh, that yeah. should be
1: our,
2: our outro just like how goodbye should be have a freshly poured guinness <laughs> Yes, yeah,
1: that's the end of the movie recording.
0: and a freshly poured Guinness.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye, good night, and have a freshly poured Guinness.